Hi, this is Roger Green, host of the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. This week, we are offering three conversations from episode 49. Finally, a clinical care pathway for hidden pandemic. Louise Campbell starts this conversation by discussing how the prevalence data is, as she puts it, seriously concerning. From there, she goes on to call for the WHO to include fatty liver disease in its diabetes mandate. In the next portion, Louise raises the value of transient elastography as a... She goes on to discuss the value of transient elastography as a screening technique, while Ken Kuzi and Stephen Harrison mention alternatives when transient elastography is not available. At the end, I ask, what can be done today? Ken Cousy talks about drug choices for diabetic and obese patients. Louise calls on diabetes charities to take up fatty liver as an issue. And Stephen notes eloquently that, quote, we have to start somewhere. The study could have targeted more patient categories and suggested more options. But the most important thing is to have successful starts in doctors who've not treated fatty liver aggressively before. This episode tells the story of what will be an important piece of fatty liver history. At the same time, it provides pivotal insights into the practical challenges in risk stratification, testing, diagnosis, and management of NAFLD and NASH patients that we face today. So sit back, listen, enjoy, learn, and when you're done, join the discussion on our LinkedIn and Facebook discussion groups. Louise Campbell. Putting the data together and what Stephen's just said, seriously concerning, isn't it? This is why these guidelines do have the ability, if we put them in, to basically locate a changeable generation. We know that people die young of liver disease. We know that liver cancer is growing in these populations. By starting this sort of pathway, realistically as soon as we can, not only in the US but around the world, allows us to find that changeable generation where we can find the severe cases now and prolong their life, make an intervention. We can also reduce the effect of diabetes and that coming up. It's also the timing of this release. It comes at a time where the WHO have called a meeting for people to take stakeholding in diabetes as part of the non-communicable disease pathways. All liver physicians, advocacies, all groups with any form of liver disease should now be represented at the WHO level because this piece here really states how big a part we have to play in diabetes and the outcomes of type 2 diabetes. So with that call for stakeholders to be named, then I think this paper should be presented. It should be part of the evidence base that we need to be part of that discussion and this allows us to do it. The other thing that I was thinking was currently Fibroscan is very expensive because it's placed way upstream in secondary care. So you've got to have referrals to get to these very expensive devices. By placing it in primary care and for anybody listening to the podcast that doesn't know what Fibroscan is it's a quick point of care assessment that can add 5 to 10 minutes if not 15 to some of your practice but it's actually worth doing. It gives you immediate information and it gives the patient a FAC score and a fibrosis score. So you can do it there and then. By placing it in primary care we remove the 9 out of 10 referrals we get for abnormal liver function tests simply had a fatty soft liver that can go back to primary care with a little bit more management. It has the potential to remove costs to primary care physicians, which again is a huge benefit. Ken Kusi. Those are great points. If you allow me, Roger, number one, thank you because there's a diverse audience. So elastography is a technique that can be used as point of care and hepatologists have been using it for a long time now. It's just really measures liver stiffness. And again, based as you get sicker, your liver will be stiffer as an extreme and cirrhosis. So it just translates that stiffness into a number that's accurate 
actionable. Now, there are other techniques like shear wave elastography and Steve might be the most appropriate and there are others in development. So it just happens that there is more outcome data with elastography. The second thing is that although ideally may develop in a point of care, at the present time, if you don't have an elastography device, you can always refer to your hepatologist that at least in, in the United States, it's fairly common. I'm sure that in many European countries and you can refer, it's not something, it's ideal if you can make the decision right away, but it's like a bone density, right? So you could, you don't need to have it now. You can order it and have it by the next visit. So it shouldn't be a major impediment. Also, and again, Steve as a real expert on biomarkers, this consensus statement will be the best way to view this. It's not a guideline in the strict way of a form, but it's an expert opinion piece. Let's call it that way. There are other commercial biomarkers available if you don't have access to a fiber scan that can help you refer to the further management and referral to a hepatologist. So we did feel um, that that's an important piece. Give alternatives because many places in the world don't have access to elastography. And there are other biomarkers. Steve, would you like to comment on those and an additional testing if you don't have a fiber scan uh, available? Stephen Harrison. Yeah, so one of the very basic principles of screening for the at-risk NASH patient, and when I say that, let me define that. I'm talking about identifying a fatty liver patient that has inflammation and activity and scar tissue that puts that patient at greatest risk of progressing to cirrhosis and a negative histopathological outcome. I'm not talking at all about at-risk cardiovascular disease, renal disease, sleep apnea, or whatever. I'm really focused on the liver now. When we begin to look at that very simply, what we've learned is that two biomarkers are better than one. So in this particular scenario, with the guidelines that we're talking about today, we're using a very simple biomarker that has uh, optimized sensitivity, and we're using it with an imaging biomarker to kind of refine that patient's risk. And if you do not have an imaging biomarker such as Fibroscan, there are other biomarkers that you could use. In fact, a couple of them that are out there would be the ELF score, which has recently been approved by Siemens Health and Ears and is predictive of long-term prognosis. The cutoff I like to use is 9.8. In addition, there's a wet biomarker called NIS4 and also liver fast. So there, there are a, a couple of them out there. If you didn't want to use a blood-based biomarker, you could also look at imaging studies, whether that's MRI-based, MR elastography, or corrected T1. One nice thing about both of those tests is they have been linked to long-term prognosis. So a CT1 score, a corrected CT1, I'm not talking about a CT scan. I'm talking about an MRI corrected T1 value of greater than 840 is linked to a negative outcome for those patients. The diagnosis of NASH has really kind of been set at around 800 milliseconds. For MR elastography, a value of 5 kPa, which is essentially taking the fibro scan and dividing by 3. MR elastography uses the same ultrasound-based attenuation of tissue. It's just done through an MR technique. And values of 5 or greater are really linked to cirrhosis. 
once you get to that number, there's actually a prediction probability of an outcome. In fact, that data was presented and published by Alina Allen. We've discussed that on this podcast as well. But in summary, a KPA of five gives you a 20% chance of progressing to a negative outcome in three years, as opposed to an MRE of eight KPA, which doubles that risk to 40%. So there are other tools that you can use out there. We're not beholden to FibroScan. Uh, that's just what uh, what we felt would be most appropriate in, in the guidance that we wrote. So thank, thank you for that, uh, Stephen and, and, and Ken and Louise. I'm realizing that if I were listening to this in our primary care doc and I hadn't thought a lot about fatty liver disease, that I would realize that two out of the last five 50-something-year-old men who walked into my office who weren't complaining about their livers or anything that would be considered liver compliant have fatty livers. And that not quite one of them, but if you take it up to 10 people, one or two of them have gotten ash as well. And those are the people who have no complaint. And if you add diabetes, those numbers start to sky. So all three of you, what should the advocates, champions, and hepatologists be doing? And then what should everybody else be doing? So that folks are more aware of exactly how much of this is passing in front of their eyes right now that they're just not seeing. Well, that's a great question, Roger. And again, we debated this in every encounter with Steve, Louise, and experts across the world because it's taking a little bit longer than we wish. When there will be FDA-approved drugs, this will make itself, will accelerate in terms of screening. I do believe that there is a sense that there's nothing to be done now. And I think that is also something harming the screening and awareness because I think that the effect of weight loss has been underestimated. But I think that is changing as we develop finally highly effective and and safe drugs like are the GLP-1 receptor agonist. And recently this year, we have dual receptor agonists that have glucagon-like peptide 1, which is a hormone that's made by our L cells in the gut that enhance insulin secretion, but its greatest beauty has been the promotion of weight loss and the range of 12 to 16 percent. And these dual ones that add another hormone called GIP that have even similar or in some circumstances greater benefits. So the weight loss part of it and finally recent evidence that it does improve histology and at least halt to the most, to the greatest extent, uh, progression of fibrosis is going to begin changing that conversation. And I just think that it's going to take a lot of education. That's why with Steve and the other experts in these guidelines, we try to identify three simple groups that would make the primary care say, mm, does this patient fit in any of these three groups? And then now it's a better profiled person. Although still a lot of people, but remembering if you have type 2 diabetes to check for liver disease is now going to be a closer relationship. And again, thinking if you have steatosis and liver enzymes is a little bit more vague, but quite important too. So we're beginning to get the, the train to leave the station. Louise or Stephen, and then I think we're getting towards last question time. I'd just like to see the diabetes charities really take this up because there's very little education on any of the diabetes websites that I've seen about fatty liver disease or my hepatology charities they talk about diabetes and are the other linked but the other question for Stephen and Ken was did you consider another high-risk group postmenopausal women because when Stephen was recounting his study there there were Hispanic women type 2 diabetes 
to older age. And we know that women now, post-menopause, lose their oestrogens, they develop fatty liver disease quicker. And I think it's the leading cause of transplant in that age group now. Did it get considered or would that be an important one for primary care physicians just to look at as a risk of fatty liver? It's a great point. And again, there are groups left out. For example, we could have put polycystic ovarian syndrome. We could have put people with sleep apnea. So there are, as you know, from the insulin resistance metabolic syndrome, there are subsets that clearly would benefit anybody with acanthosis nigricans, which is thickening of the skin and the neck and armpits. So those are insulin resistant and likely. But this is like a foundation. This is like a, a simple, okay, let's start here. And then uh, we'll refine the these as we move forward. So it, it, it was not an omission. It just, let's start with a group that, that is easy to remember, straightforward, and we'll build upon that. Stephen, anything to add before we go to final question? The comments that Louise and Ken made are spot on. I mean, they're, they're groups we're leaving out. This is a start. I've linked it to the Wright brothers, you know, to kind of learn how to fly. And the first plane took off in what lasted 25 or 40 seconds or something and then fell back down. And, and that's where we are with a lot of this very nascent early days in fatty liver disease, not only in risk stratification and identifying non-invasive tests that could be used across a wide platform of patients that are readily available. We just don't have those yet. We're refining them. And in drug development, we don't have the fifth generation strike fighter jet either. I mean, we don't have an F-22 or an F-35 for the treatment of NASH. We're getting there. We do have some treatment, as Ken mentioned, that that gets after one of the foundational principles of fatty liver, which is obesity. And able to reduce obesity and improve weight has been linked to not only improvement and resolution of steatohepatitis, but also prevention of the progression of fibrosis. So we got to start somewhere. And I think this is a fantastic first step and we can't rest on our laurels again. We're going to have to go back to the drawing board and continue to refine this and make it better and better and better. And that goes with education. It goes to delivering, you know, Ken and I don't always write the mail, but we can deliver it. And, and so that's our job. <laughs> I think I'll jump in and leave Ken the final word. I suppose for me, it's about driving education, 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 but also increased access to diagnostics in a timely manner. COVID has certainly hit our ability in the UK to fibre scan in lots of areas with extensive waiting lists because of the redeployment of staff. So I think there are ways around it. It's a fabulous piece and we get the patients and the people who think they might be suffering to ask their GPs. Spread the word amongst the advocacy groups. Ask your GP if you're type 2 diabetic, you want your liver checked, you want your NAFLD score, you want your FIB4, you want your fibro scan. You, you want to know that your liver's healthy or safe or you make, need to make a change because that's where it'll help primary care physicians really make that change that is just so warranted and needed now. Okay. Ken? I'll just say very briefly that, again, hepatologists have known about this for now quite some time, and they have very comprehensive and clear guidelines. What we wanted to do is take that expertise, mix it with those who are not as familiar, like endocrinologists, weight management, primary care doctors, and make it this a kickoff basically from the trenches. Now it's time to, you know, go to war, get to work. As I said, this was based on the call to action. We wanted these three simple figures for people to begin moving. 
And again, this is going to evolve, but it's important because it's in the hands of the primary care doctors to prevent cirrhosis. So we are really preventing cirrhosis one patient at a time and with tools that you can apply today to make that happen. Our mission is to get the right patients to the hepatologist. Again, with these tools, you can probably leave for lifestyle and management and cardiovascular prevention 70 or 80% of the patients. We need to get that 20, 25% to, to the experts, Steve and their teams. We have accomplished something if at the end of the day, we prevented at least one patient from having cirrhosis and I'm sure will be many more than that. So see this as a kickoff. And Roger, I want to thank you because what you're doing with this weekly podcast is to reach out to many doctors who want to learn more, want to know what to do, and maybe even some patients who, thanks to you, are going to have a a much better quality of life moving forward. Well, thank you, Ken. All credit to Stephen and Louise, without whom I probably would have tuckered out on this about a year ago. And thank you for your kind words and, and credit to all you guys. As I said, my first reaction when I read the paper was a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. This is more like a marathon. It feels not just one huge step forward, like, you know, 26 miles forward, 50 miles forward, another 950 left to go though. So as, as you say, we need to focus on the important thing, which is can we get the patients that need treatment treatment by understanding how many of the people we screen won't need treatment and that that's a sign of success, not failure, screening people who then test negative. And I think about Stephen's numbers from 11 and 21 in the two San Antonio studies, not a lot more NASH, not a lot more NAFLD, but a lot more severe disease. So the consequence of not tackling this now will be most keenly felt by the people who are going to be the sickest eight years from now. Hats off to you, Ken, and to everybody who's a part of this, and Stephen and the other co-authors I know and those we don't. We will keep seeing what we can do on this podcast weekly to do exactly what you just said. Educate folks who want to learn, provide them with simple ways to operate, and hopefully help those people who don't have to be sick to be treated before they get sick. And now, back to Roger. We hope you have enjoyed this recording. If you have any questions or comments about the content of this conversation or the entire episode, please send an email to questions at surfingnash.com. We will be back next Wednesday, October 13th, to discuss innovations in imaging the liver with Lars Johansson reprising the talk he gave at Paris Nash. I hope you'll join us then. Until then, stay safe, surf on, see you on the podcast. Bye-bye now. (laughs) 